Hello and welcome to New Oral Cultures, the podcast studies podcast. My name's Dario Linares. It's good to be back with you after a little hiatus. Hopefully this episode will make up for the lack of output over the last couple of weeks. Um, momentum's a term in politics, in sport, and I think it also applies to podcasting. You've got to keep those uh, episodes churning out, which is which is what we intend to do for sure. As you'll probably know, we have a, a new Oral Cultures Twitter account and using that's been really great to scout out some people who I do want to get on the show. In fact, I've got an awfully long list of potential contributors that I've got to email and try to schedule discussions with them so that they... Uh, then come on the show and talk about all of their practice and their thoughts on uh, everything podcasting. Thanks for the feedback on my discussion with Martin Spinelli in the last episode. Lots of online chat coming out of that, which was uh, gratifying to see and and, uh, partake in. Particularly some debates around transcribing of the interviews. I know that's a topic of discussion that's really of interest to podcasters, particularly those perhaps that are situated in, in academia or, or want to reference reference what people say on the audio that gets recorded in academic journals or in news items or in blogs, for example. Um, it's something I've been thinking about a lot and I was recently at a MEXA conference, the subject of which was practice-led research. And I was sort of thinking about and talking about the notion of the relationship between sound and text and the kind of hierarchy between those two things. So I would argue that sound is subordinate to text and and looking at the kind of dynamics of that, especially when it relates to podcasts, but also how it relates to perhaps a transition that maybe we're going into now into an era where sound becomes much much more integrated into society in an ins- instrumental way. And what I mean by that is the way that, that our technological devices are much more are becoming much more sound controlled. If you think about the ways in which Google and other companies are using devices now that are sound activated and how AI is being used to identify the voice. So there's this whole perhaps shift that's taking place that may be part of a of a discourse in which sound is less subordinate to text and it's interesting how podcasts if they are to be referenced say in academic journals which is something that obviously if you're involved in podcast studies you'll probably be looking to do do they need to be converted into text i.e would it be really helpful for podcasts to automatically be transcribed and then put say into the show notes so that they can be referenced at any given point and I think this this relates back to you know the way that that, that textuality is kind of instrumentalized as the anchoring point of knowledge we can't really get around it one of the things you realize if you're doing academic podcasting or if you're doing any kind of practice-led research is that that justification of the practice as research is often a barrier that you have to jump over in some way i.e adding in text to something that doesn't automatically or naturally have it at the forefront of the practice so if you're a i don't know a painter or a sculptor or a sound artist then you often have to attach some level of text to explain the work and particularly explain where the research part of it is where the academic 
rigor is. And I think this, this idea goes back centuries in terms of the kind of dichotomy between theory and practice. And it's something that's become embedded into the notion, the very notion of, of what we understand as, as knowledge. And I was also thinking about the kind of time and labor issue that goes goes along with that. I know that there's software out there that transcribes audio and, you know, it would be fairly straightforward, I think, to, to do that and put it onto the show notes. But I always feel like the raw transcript would need tidying up. There are so many mistakes in, in scare quotes that I would always want to go through and have an edit of any raw transcription of of a speech that I give. God, listening back when I'm editing my own conversations in audio, there's so many things that I, I consider mistakes or things that need tidying up or changing that if I saw my raw speech just transcribed, I think there's no way I would let that go out online without going through and giving it a thorough edit, I think. Um, so there's a whole sense of this is adding to the, the workload on top of podcasting. And it's definitely a an issue that is embedded in um, a further research pr- project that I'm working on. It is definitely something that is worth discussion in, in a podcast in and of itself. But on to today's episode, which I'm really excited to bring you. So the recording today is based on a podcasting research workshop that I was invited to lead at Birkbeck, the University of London, by Professor Catherine Grant, who is a practice-led researcher, particularly in the area of video essays. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with her work. It was a whole afternoon thing where I, I started off by giving a keynote about my own practice with the cinematologists and now, of course, with New Oral Cultures. Then we went into a three hour workshop session with five PhD students. And all of their all of their research areas did have a kind of sound-based element, but they'd never podcasted before. So we spent the time going through the basics of some of the te- technical aspects of podcasting, some of the structuring in terms of how a one-off episode was going to be produced, and then talked a little bit about presentation and, and uh, speaking on audio and... and then had a, a quick rehearsal and split the PhD students into two groups and on they went. And I have to say, they were all complete naturals. What was really satisfying for me was that they all got the potential of podcasting, not just as a communication platform, but as a space for knowledge production. They all got into that pattern of working through their own knowledge and their own research through the discussion and played around with the ideas and concepts in a way that they weren't set, they were working through them. Also, none of the conversations were taped in a studio, but just in you know regular seminar rooms in the university. But the sound quality is, is pretty good and it, it kind of shows what you can do with basic equipment if you want to do academic podcasting. I'm not going to go into detail introducing the specifics of the content because they do that themselves in, in what follows. But the session and the outcome really kind of reaffirmed my belief that podcasting really does have and should have a central role in academia. The crossover of ideas between the students' research, the themes that they explored, and how much their conversation links to podcast studies, I found really useful and I hope that you do too. 
Just to say once again, thanks very much to Catherine for inviting me to the session and thanks to Joe Coleman for assisting in the technical aspects and organisation of the day and also to Issa Onkal for her support. So I hope you enjoy this episode featuring the PhD students from the School of Art at Birkbeck University of London. this special edition of New Oral Cultures. We're here at Birkbeck University of London. So today we've been exploring academic podcasting and trying out some different approaches. My name is Emily Best. I'm a first year PhD student in the School of English and Humanities. And my name is Paul Martin. I'm a third year uh, student in the English and Humanities department as well. Um, and we're joined today by Henry Mulhall, um, Lily Green and Mark Rana. And today we looked at introducing ourselves to the idea of podcasting, in particular around the theme of mediation and research. And in the first segment, myself and Henry look at the question of authenticity in voices. So that leads us quite nicely onto the second section where we look at physicality and mediation through oral cultures, through listening, through viewing, um, but more specifically at processes of decomposition, whether that's through a physical process, whether that's music, or whether in, in Mars' case, looking at dementia, mental health, and the process of building relationships. Hi, I'm Henry. Hi, and I'm Paul. And uh, we're both um, students doing PhDs at Burbeck in uh, quite disparate um, research fields. But we've we discovered through conversation that there are some commonalities or a kind of a thread or a theme, uh, potentially around the area of authentic voice. Yeah, I think, um, like, as you say, we're, we're coming at things from very different angles. But um, I, I'd say, broadly speaking, I'm sceptical about the idea of an authentic voice. And you... Um, yeah, I would try like and to, find authentic voices. Yeah, and I would like to say I'm trying to help authentic voices be heard, and so I kind of um, it's an interesting conversation coming from those two points of views. Um, so that I can uh, get a little bit more about about your research, could you tell me a bit more about about the area or your approach to it? Or sure. Um, so I look at um, a specific area of Plymouth called Union Street, um, which has a kind of big mix of arts organisations and uh, community groups working within it. It's a very um, poor area of Plymouth, or poor area of the country. It's in uh, the bottom 5% for social depravity in the country. And um, I start from a place of thinking of uh, the idea that arts organisations have to engage communities or engage publics in order to uh, receive funding, essentially. And so I kind of start to think of the idea of um, formal ways of engaging communities, and then more informal practices that happen that um, are kind of doing it anyway. They're, they're doing it naturally. Because I think that my starting point in, in some sense would be that what is this community? What is it to engage? Um, all these things are very um, abstract terms, I think, when you actually start looking at them. Um, and so my research is, is trying to construct or kind of map uh, a informal constellation of these arts organizations through their use of language. 
And I think broadly speaking, I would say there's an idea of a institutional rhetoric, which might come from something like the Arts Council, and then a ordinary way of speaking, which um, someone who lives in the area or works in the area may just adopt. And I think there's often different registers of how people talk, different voices and different ideas of authenticity of voice, whether you're applying for money or whether you're using that money in the area or whether you're justifying your own actions. Um, and so that that's, I think, where my I, uh, my uh, kind of scepticism of authenticity of voice comes from. So, so, so do you think people modulate how they're speaking according to the, the scenario they're in? And, and that makes it less authentic if they do that? Or, do, or does it make it just appropriate to the, the situation? Or... Yeah, so I... I I think that the thing for me is that I, there probably isn't any one voice that someone has that's their real voice. Um, and it's fine that, you know, when you when you talk in a certain situation, you use a certain kind of technical language maybe that comes with that. And PhD students certainly know about that. Absolutely. Um, as do doctors or teachers or anyone, you know. And there's nothing wrong with that, I don't think, necessarily. But I think what where, where it becomes slightly problematic, possibly, is um, when a certain kind of... Uh, not voice but rhetoric comes in so and, I, and this is a, a kind of um, conjecture of mine that I, I hope to kind of investigate through the research is that you adopt a certain kind of language that's imposed upon you by a funding application for example or a policy document um, and then your use of that language then dictates your, your behavior so it's the fact that or the idea that um, language can start altering behavior Sure. And and so whether there's authentic voices or not, I think an inauthentic voice affecting behaviour is probably not a good thing. Okay. Or something that should be looked at. So you see the kind of use of certain kind of language, and it, would it also be a certain kind of tone as well as language, or or is it is it, it you know a certain approach to using language in a certain kind of way actually affects behaviour? Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, what I think part of this is that. Um, I come from what I would consider quite a Wittgensteinian uh, understanding of things like language games. So a certain certain meanings and terms and gestures have meanings within certain contexts, within certain games, that, and, and that isn't the same across the board. Um, so when two PhD students are talking for, for the purpose of a podcast, Absolutely. certain meanings and gestures will have a certain meaning, um, certain, sorry, certain words and gestures have a certain meaning which will not necessarily have the same meaning in a different context. Yeah. Um, and this gets very complicated and, and lots of people argue over these kind of ideas of what a context is and what a meaning is and all these kind of things. But um, yeah, I think for me, uh, I'm just interested in seeing the difference and the connections between how different organisations, different people talk. Yeah. I try not to pass value judgments. Well, yeah. that is difficult. That, that is very difficult when you have a personal investment. I'm from Plymouth originally, so it's kind of, there is a personal yeah. aspect to this for me. So how does being from Plymouth, how do you think that places you as being a kind of, an, are you, are you a, almost a participant observer or just an observer? Because in some sense, by being part of the area and part of your history, it, it, it must give you a certain kind of position, possibly. Yeah, I mean, so for, I don't live there anymore. Um, and I haven't, I haven't lived there for about 15, 20, 17 years maybe. Um, 
and going back and going to an area that I, I was never that familiar with apart from going out and drinking because it used to be a big nightclub area and, and infamous uh, nightclub area for cheap drinks, lots of fights with Navy guys, that kind of thing. Not that I <laughs> took part in that kind of thing myself. So there's actually an element of fear for me that I've kind of had to overcome. And, you know, it's not the same anymore. And the people, when you listen to their voices, they're not, they're not those people who were using the area for, broadly speaking, entertainment um, or leisure, which none of those words seem appropriate, really. Um, but there's a, an assumed, I, have, I, I, have, I, I, think I, I think I know certain things about people from Plymouth, because I'm from Plymouth. Yeah. And it's, on the one hand, that's a, it's, a useful, it's useful to remember that when, you're re, when anyone is researching that the, the, the preconceived ideas they might have before they step into the context they're researching are probably not helpful. I think sure. that's a pretty... Or, 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 or being aware of them is useful, though, because, because you know that you carry that with you into it. So having an awareness of them is a way of mitigating against them being too influential in how you do the research. Sure. And you know, you know, or an admittance of it is, is, is interesting. So I think this is a good way to start talking about your research in a certain kind of way. Sure. Because, so, well... I think the idea that um, you're looking for this authentic voice, which is inherently not your own. Absolutely. Could you say a bit more about that? Yes, uh, maybe, yeah, yeah sure. I, I kind of particularly looking at the area of research of, of kind of 90s London in particular, or 90s London, Manchester and Birmingham, and in particular looking at kind of um, the sort of black um, electronic street culture that came up in those periods. And the way in which it was basically something that wasn't within the mainstream and looking at it now it's become the fabric of the mainstream music industry the records we hear on the radio the records that are largely on spotify and so it's interesting for me how the music how it's mutated and how it's managed to keep its authenticity um although it's interesting what you were saying about um people modifying their tonal voices because often people assume, say for instance with rap music or with grime, that when the rapper speaks, they're telling their story because within hip hop there's a big thing about telling your story and keeping it real. But often um, these personas are fabrications as well, in the same way an actor might play a role, in the same mm. way an artist might present themselves in a certain way in public and might be different in, in private. And mm. I don't have a problem so much with these slippages of, of being authentic or inauthentic because I think maybe it's different for an artist because I think an artist can play a persona mm. and can through their language they use create something that's authentic to that artist but maybe it's different to who they are yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe I, I see it more as a tool or maybe think that maybe in the journey they've made from being more underground to now being more successful that um, they have allowed a certain element of authenticity to remain in what they do as opposed to um, letting the mainstream music audience dictate how they have to be mm. I think they've found a way of being successful being themselves mm. and maybe that's because nowadays like if we take Storms as an example who had a number one record as, on an independent label with his own money um, he originally put up a freestyle on, on YouTube um, and that's re really broken through in the underground and it got X amount of thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of views. 
which actually put him into the mainstream pop charts without a label just off the back of streaming. And so in a way, he was being authentic then. It was just a video shot in a park and a playground with some kids on bikes. And so the authenticity of that was there, even if he was playing a slight role, as opposed to him being told to, you've got to put a pop hook in after two minutes and have a big hook or if it's no, nobody's going to play it. So I kind of um, maybe... Are coming it from another perspective to the way that you see it, although. Yeah. So I think I what's interesting. What's interesting here is um, maybe there's a separation between authentic voice and then that voice being attached to a body that you think is permanent in some way. So there's there's Stormzy, who's the performing artist, yes, and his voice may be authentic, but Stormzy the man isn't always Stormzy. If if that makes sense, absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah. I I do I do I do think that I do think to a certain extent when you're in that in the public lens in that way you're playing a game. Yeah. Although I think there's the authenticity of the kind of the street slang and the language that he used, which appeals to people that begin to like him, even if initially they're people that share that language, they feel there's authenticity in the language he shares. Yeah. Maybe there's a difference between the authenticity of him as a person and the authenticity of the culture he uses. Yeah. Maybe. And I think maybe interesting enough from your perspective, it, it it's with the arts organizations, it's how do they engage with people, I guess, and what language do they use and yeah. how does that affect behaviour? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I think an example of this, I was, I was recently talking to one of the um, founders and kind of leading figures in this community action group um, that I'm working with called Nudge. Um, and they were working with a local arts professional. Um, and everyone in Plymouth's very intertwined. Everyone knows each other. Um, so, you know, this arts professional's worked in a number of different contexts, and then it came, came around to her working with Nudge. And um, the woman from Nudge was saying, um, we were really excited about it. We really wanted to work with artists and, and these galleries and these art professionals. Um, but the art professionals and the artists came back and had the feeling that they, they weren't professional enough. These, the Nudge, um, weren't taking the art seriously enough, I, I think was the, kind of the way they sort of didn't know how to take the art seriously enough. Um, and so if you're thinking of um, getting public money to engage groups, absolutely, um, it turned out that being authentic um, wasn't good enough because what was required was the inauthentic arts professional voice. Um, and I think the idea of body and voice there, um, the woman from Nudge, they were too close together, I think, in some ways. Sure. Her, her voice and her, her personal persona and her, her body weren't separate enough to appear professional, I think. And there's, I, I would say... Do you think there needs to be that sort of separation to appear professional or...? or, or... I think people will think that. I think I think people are so used to performing in a certain kind of yeah. way on a certain kind of platform um, that they find it jarring to see someone not doing that. So, um, so do you think that the people think there's one way of having to be that way, and they don't consider other ways people could be in that space? Or, or I don't think people I don't think people think about it in terms of what's authentic and what's not. I think people think about it what's made them successful in their field, mm. um, and I think people don't realize um 
the voice they use. And that brings me around to one of uh, the kind of influences of my methodology, which is um, uh, the artist Darcy Lang, who in 1977 uh, made a, a video work called um, Work Studies in Schools. And um, he would basically film a classroom. He was going around different working contexts in Britain, filming people at work. Um, and in this, this instance in a school, he then made a recording of the teacher watching himself teach. And he is almost astounded by his, his own performance, one that he gives every day and has been giving for X number of years. He didn't realize um, the sound of his voice. He didn't realize the performance he was, he was giving. Um, and so I, I think there, what, what's important about that for me is that not, not that there's um, an inauthenticity to the way the guy's teaching, it's that he didn't realize that his idea of himself and the, the idea of, uh, and, and his actual performance were different. And I, that, that, that somehow suggests an inauthentic performance, but I don't think that's necessarily negative. Inauthentic is often thought of as negative. And okay, I don't so, think that's necessarily the case. Okay, so for you, in all authentic, it's not necessarily negative. It just is. It is a different way of expressing, or it it's where is is it where the voice doesn't align with the body or or, or behaviour, or is it? Um, I think it's the fact that these things just seem seamless to to the people listening and the people talking. It, there seems to be a seamlessness between. Um, voice performance body you know that i don't think these things are ruptured at any point and and this is what i find interesting about darcy lang's approach is that turning the film back on the um back on the filmed um and that's something that for me is i, I think very important is it's it's not to trip people up it's it, that's not the idea it's it's more to um show people their performance make them listen to their own voice do, do you think people often enough have that opportunity to see how they are because in that particular example with that film, the, the, the teacher who naturally did, well, maybe not naturally, but because teaching in its own way is a performance still. Yeah, of course. But, but he would have had a, a pattern to his performances over time, having repeated them on a daily basis. Do you think, did, did, do you think that he, having seen that, would then change how he did things or he was just shocked at, at how it appeared? Possibly. And and I think my probably hope is that people will alter their behaviour through being faced with their own kind of um, kind of general modes of speech or you know their their, their different kind of their standard ways of, of articulation. And I think this this is what I see as the problem uh, of that kind of um, funding arts professional and then recipient kind of dynamic is that. Um, I don't see a hell of a lot of effect in most publicly engaged or, or community engaged art practices. Um, and I think artists are very good at justifying themselves and in that moment, feeling positive about it and then moving on. And so if you don't actually stop and think, was this actually successful and who should I listen to find, to find out if that was successful, um, you'll just go off and do the same thing again, believing you're, you're successful. Sure, and and this is in this is potentially. Um, I also had some experience of running a music charity and seeing social engagement, particularly through music. And certainly, sometimes there could be a gap between the intentions of what was being put on or the um, 
the steps that you had to take or the things you had to say in order to get the funding to do it yeah between the actual practical application of the actual work itself on the ground and and then as you said afterwards really other than you know filling in a few forms with a few people saying it was good or not how do we really test the effectiveness of what's happened yeah yeah and, and whether the approach and the voice and the behavior were appropriate for the situation or the locality or the people yeah um i do i do i do think a lot a lot of arts um engagement projects often miss the mark because they have a certain thing of taking their method into a place without integrating what they do with the people that are actually in that place yeah like it's it's a bit top down as opposed to allowing information from the from the locals the language and the behavior to actually be part of the conversation as opposed to the yeah directed at and i think i think this actually comes back to this like because i think um as i understand it um in the grime scene if you start to become successful you're then seen as inauthentic but then i mean i think this is the case for many um performing artists of of a varying character um if you start to see success then you kind of reproduce what you've been doing because that was successful sure and you kind of it takes a, a huge amount of confidence to um think well i'm just going to keep doing new things because i i believe in myself rather than the performance i'm giving yeah um but the idea of you know it's almost if your voice becomes too public you it becomes inauthentic what do you I, think I, yeah that? i totally agree with that i think i think um, although I think it's maybe less bad than it used to be. I definitely, when musicians used to become more successful in the 80s or 90s, they would be seen to be selling out or moving mainstream more, probably. Now, more recently, even with Stormzy himself said that he was a grime artist, but he was making a pop record. Mm. And that was more accepting than Dizzy Rascal doing it 10, 15 years ago when he did sort of bonkers and various tunes that were kind of non-grime tracks but were like pop tracks and we mm. did the track with Calvin Harris Dance With You. At the time, his record label actually didn't want to put it out because they were like, this is too poppy. You know, mm. we like you as a grime artist and this is too commercial. But then we fast forward to 2019 and get someone like Stormzy, I think society's more accepting and the underground scenes are more accepting of their heroes crossing over now. I don't think it's such a a negative connotation as it used to be but weirdly I think the distance between the underground and the mainstream is much smaller than it used to be partly through music being disseminated much more quickly through the internet um, it doesn't take culture so long to develop it takes much uh, you know it develops very quickly now and I actually think the, the there's more of an overlap between the underground and the mainstream which means I think there's more acceptance of people becoming big and still being allowed to remain authentic. I think what's super interesting about this, and this, I, I see elements of this in the people I've been working with as well. You, there's this kind of debt to the authentic that that someone has to keep paying. My name is Lily Hunter-Green, I've been the artist in residence um, and an associate research fellow at Birkbeck for the last two years and I'm currently uh, applying for a PhD. Hi, I'm Emily, I'm doing an audio drama PhD here at Birkbeck. 
Hi, and my name's Ma. I'm a first year PhD student here at Birkbeck and I'm exploring the lived experience of dementia care. In my research, I'm looking at the radio drama specifically of Samuel Beckett. And one of the things I'm really, really interested in is the way that physicality is represented in audio. Traditionally, audio is seen as sort of the removal of the physical. It's not seen as a physical medium, particularly in drama, whereas I would argue there's a great deal of physicality to hearing speech and hearing movement. Um, so I'd be really interested, um, Lily, maybe if we start with you looking at the the representation um, of physicality and the way that uh, your work represents um, physical relationships. Um, okay, so as a sound artist, uh, in terms of physicality, so I actually create physical sound sculptures. So that's one way that I guess I do work with physicality of sound. So for example, I converted a series of old pianos into working beehives, and then I composed using the sounds the bees were making whilst living inside the soundboard of um, a piano. Um, in terms of physicality, I now actually create sound installations, so spaces in which people physically move around um, the space. So, for example, I then infected those musical compositions um, in the piano with a virus that's actually killing the bees, which was a collaboration with a, a biologist, a molecular scientist. Um, and now I create immersive um, performance spaces where audiences are all given a set of um, headphones and wearable technology and proximity sensors. And as one person in the space is hosting a virus and as you move closer to them, you will actually contract an audio virus. So there is actually a, a physical spread of sound um, and viruses around space. Um, and I guess the other in terms of my composing, I use a lot of different techniques, um, including a similar device to this Zoom, where um, myself and another composer will actually move a microphone around as if it's to mimic and recreate the flight of an insect. So physical, physical, like a realistic interpretation of the physical? Yeah. Did I, I know, sort of answer I that? Yeah, I, I guess I was thinking... Yeah, kind of moving through space and and the way that you use science and sound as a sort of mediator of science. Physicality might have been a slightly misleading term. So one of the things I'm interested in in my work is the way that um, either physicality or lived experience or biology um, and very much that the, the biological world is represented through sound and mediated through sound uh, and the way that you use the kind of the sound the the world and the sounds of insects through your work seems to have a similar have a similar sort of role the mm. thing i was going to ask mm -hmm. or the thing the thing i'm looking I'm, I'm wondering about is um the relationship between sound and space and physical experiences um so obviously science and biology and things is is one kind of way of looking at that and then also um, when you've then got the visual element as well, because your films are about the experience of um, suffering from dementia. dementia. Yeah. So how the experience of moving around that space, so whether that's physical space or you know the situational space of be of living in that world, and how that's represented through through the film. Um, well, if I look back. 
and try and think of some um, aspects of the film. And, that's I, I, um, and I'm thinking about a short film that I made in 2016 um, with me and my mother. My mother has a dementia condition. And I was filming me and her um, crafting together. And it was called One Day uh, When We Were Young. Um, and it was me holding the camera uh, and filming her, but also sometimes I would have the camera on a tripod and I would sort of sit next to her and we would come together and do crafting. And I think at the time, particularly because I was thinking about ethical issues, I decided not to kind of um, have our heads uh, in, in shot. So you just have um, lots of close-ups of kind of hands and the body um, doing things, but also um, kind of unexpectedly for me, my mother... Um, would sing as she was sewing and often the the things that she would sing had a sort of a rhythm that matched the movements that she was doing with the craft work so she would sing um, songs that were often like a, a waltz uh, tempo and there was a kind of a nice sort of movement um, in her hands that that matched the the, the tempo of the songs that she was singing and it was I'm sure completely unintentional but it just seemed to come together so well um, and I think one of the things that I noticed from kind of watching some of the film footage and because you, we didn't have our heads in shot that you did focus very much on what we were saying but as we, as you could you'd hear the audio but you'd see close-ups of fingers doing things and that somehow helped to maybe focus on what was being said because you weren't watching sort of the face or the mouth moving or yes yeah so would you it's almost like the the voice has been displaced through the hands and it's like a, a visualization physical representation of something that's traditionally auditory and obviously you can see it through a face speaking mm. But by, by kind of removing the face and, and relocating that in the hands, would you say that that has some sort of significance? I think so. Um, it's almost kind of like you know, that notion of kind of thinking through your hands. And I think often when you, sometimes when you work, when you're trying to work out a problem, you might fidget or you might use your hands or sort of do things to help you kind of process, you know, some difficult problem or challenging problem in your head or even if you're trying to kind of remember something or recall something, you might fiddle or kind of use your hands. And that somehow, that embodiment of kind of thinking is presented in the kind of physical movements of using your hands. And I think hearing that through my mother singing or talking about when she used to sew and kind of watching her hands doing that, somehow, I don't know how to describe it, but it just seemed to sort of, bring everything to kind of gather um, as a sort of... So it's a sort of reappropriation almost of the sound through a physical Yeah, I think that's medium. a good way of describing it, okay. yes, yeah. Because that sort of, Lily, that reminds me a bit of what you were saying with the, um, the beehives in the pianos and taking something very kind of physical, you know, something very physical, the beehive, that, that social space, putting it into something that traditionally is a sound-making device mm -hmm. um, and sort of merging those two worlds and it becomes a whole entity, you know, almost in the same way the hands become objects for speaking, they become mouthpieces. 
the piano becomes something different with the hive, would you say? Yeah, yeah, I guess you're kind of like um, reappropriating it in the same way um, or subverting the conventional or I don't really know. Yeah, um, I don't know the answer to that. But yes, I agree that it is giving a voice to the piano, giving a new life space, a new existence for the eye I don't know yeah maybe could you sort of talk us through the process that led you to that so what made you decide to do that okay and what was the logic behind it that is kind of a nice story but the um yeah so I a bee flew inside my piano whilst I was playing it and I was really inspired by the alleviation of sound um, it produced an, an extraordinary sound. So I basically then wondered whether it would be possible to convert my piano into a working beehive. Um, and I did. Um, but it was as if the bee found its home in a kind of different way. It sort of led me. And then I didn't come from a science background and started with music and then kind of now working almost completely in insects so the subject found me in the same way as I'm now giving the bees a voice um, for n- sort of promoting the declining population of the bees as my sort of research mm-hmm. but yeah that yeah it was quite interesting I before that I was decomposing co- um, pianos um, so there was already an element of deconstructing things because I yeah, it's really hard to... It's like such a long story that I feel like if I go into it, we're going to be... Sure. In the work I'm doing, I'm looking at the imagined stage, as in the space of the stage, the space of people moving around the stage on the radio. So it's never quite clear what, just how physical that is, just how visible that is, if it really exists. And both of you seem to be looking at social exchange in different ways, whether it's between caregiver and patient or the world of a beehive and the world of exchange in the insect world. And I think, again, there's um, possibly some some commonalities there, although they're completely separate things. Um, so, Mar, do you want to talk a bit about how you see the, the representation of the social space through film? Well, maybe going back, to the idea of this social, how did you describe it? Social social exchange. Social exchange. Um, I I think for me when I made the film, and because maybe I was making it um, of my of filming my mother, and and I didn't necessarily think of have I didn't necessarily have the audience in mind, um, and I was it was very much about kind of um, understanding what it would be like to feel, for me to film my, my mother and to also kind of connect with her or to be with her in a different way. So not to be in that space as a carer, but to be in that space um, as a filmmaker or as a, as a daughter. Um, so I think maybe the social space that I, um, that I was filming was, even though it was within the home, I think what came about through the um, the process of filmmaking that maybe at the beginning it was very maybe from if I reflect on it at the beginning we were you know I was the daughter who was the carer for my mother but actually through the process of filmmaking and through crafting 
there was a bit of a switch in the in terms of the social roles where my mother kind of started to have more input of what was happening in that film space and she actually took took over in a very in a kind of disruptive but actually in a way that I kind of embraced and she kind of became the mother again and started telling me what or advising me rather I should say what to do and then I kind of felt maybe a bit more empowered in this process of filmmaking so it, it captured and I don't know whether it's so explicit to see as a as a person watching the film but for me uh, reflecting on it our roles change through the process of, of filmmaking and taking on different roles of me being the daughter or the filmmaker or the carer or for, for my mother being the person being cared for or then being um, a mother or being someone as a storyteller telling stories of what it was like growing up in the West Indies. Mm -hmm. So our roles kind of switched a bit and I think that that was interesting to kind of see in terms of the social space. Okay, so it's very much sort of the, 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 the act of recording and the thing you're recording are sort of in, in an exchange and in an interplay. Um, yes, and also influenced each other yeah. and I, I think allowed us, well definitely allowed me to kind of change my role and I don't know if my mother, mother's role kind of changed organically or she was also responding to how I was kind of changing with her. It's difficult mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To, to tell. I, I guess we were kind of feeding off each other yeah. um, but we were kind of yeah, negotiating what our roles could okay. be and they kind of changed and, and that was nice. Yeah, Yeah. It's, I'm thinking it's, it's interesting because Lily your work, would it be fair to say your work is is much more about manipulating something that already exists into a representation whereas Mario's is more iterative and about a kind of collaborative process between the thing that's being or the person that's being recorded and the person that's doing the recording whereas yours is more about taking something that already exists and shaping it into something new. Yeah probably um, it's definitely about presenting an alternative way for somebody to experience a subject um, so that they think and feel and respond to it in through a kind of different eyes or a different experience, I guess. Um, but yeah, and I haven't yet had experience. I'm still, I guess, well, I'm not that early in this project, but like, I, I still feel like that might end up happening. What in terms of, I'm not even sure again if it's related, but like um, collaborating with a scientist, for example, by bringing people together, they are then generating more work which is outside of the creative realm. So it is essentially like taking their research, molecular science research or whatever, giving um, audiences a different platform to experience and learn from it. But then what's happening is like some of the people that are uh, collaborating in the project are actually producing work that's mm -hmm. then generating other stuff. But yeah, in indirectly, I guess. Um, I don't know if I'm still on the same track. I'm having too many ideas, but... No such thing as too many. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so through the, as I mentioned earlier, and the idea of um, construct building a hive mind through immersive art, so the idea of bringing unlikely collaborators together into one sort of space, 
um, like a scientist and well, a molecular scientist and a computer scientist and then a choreographer and a social scientist and then an opera singer, bringing them all into a kind of one thing in the and dividing the labor and every, everybody has a representative voice like they would in a hive. It means that actually the two scientists that have met on this platform or through Be Composed Live, which is the name of the project, they then go and um, so by the kind of interdisciplinary nature of this and building this hive mind through immersive art, I'm bringing together people that wouldn't normally meet under any other circumstances, like, for example, two scientists of different specific natures, like a molecular scientist working with viruses, but then a, a computer scientist also working with viruses. They come and meet under my project because they have their own role within the project, but they're now collaborating on something externally, so something that they've realized the familiarities between their kind of um, viruses that are in this project, which means that they, they're now looking at machinery that they could potentially develop outside of the project. So it's kind of, I'm building it in lots of ways. Uh, I'm as much of a connector as I am an artist or a sort of a platform, but pre presenting platforms in which could um, send these interdisciplinary conversations outside of the project yeah so yeah it's I am developing a space taking um something and giving people an alternative experience of something so appropriating it and giving them a kind of mm -hmm. different experience um to provoke responses and feeling feelings or um but then also yeah providing a new platform in which to encourage collaboration I mean, I was thinking maybe, I don't know whether this is too simplistic, but perhaps is it for you that you're kind of creating, it's about creating new knowledge and new ideas and new thinking? And I'm wondering, for me, it almost feels like I'm kind of uncovering things that have become um, sort of hidden or um, submerged because of this disease mm -hmm. that has taken over my mother's life and in, in a sense my life so I'm trying to kind of rediscover something of what we were but from listening to you talk about how you kind of work and sort of creating this platform and bringing people together it's almost sounds like kind of creating new um, space for new knowledge yeah. to come into kind of um, existence from these kind of conversations or yeah encounters I guess yeah yeah that too but I guess what's resonated with what you just said there is the the deconstruction of things so quite often I deconstruct things to find the heart of something to be able to uh, make peace with it and be able to build it up again mm -hmm. so that's kind mm -hmm. of I don't know if it's again a bit more appropriate to the piece I mentioned at the beginning which is where I I didn't even say it actually I just waffled on for ages but I basically decomposed a, a, um, a composition a musical composition that I then installed in a decomposing piano can so you, can you explain what you mean by decomposing a composition and decomposing so, a piano there? interesting my book says decomposition <laughs> on it and has bees on it um new connections yeah so what I did there is um so as a composer I I have a real I had a real problem with performing live. Like it was something I've always feared and I didn't like to present myself in any of my work. And it's changed dramatically recently just by default. But I 
took myself out of all my piano, all of my things. So I basically then the piano I learned to play on, I was left in the garden for ten years to decompose, and that was. But when I was really young, I just said to my parents, like, "Can we play it in the garden? Because it's it's a really old piano. We're going to get another one." And so they did. And then so by the time I'd got to university and I was studying music, the piano had actually to completely decompose and de- de- become loads of things had started living in it. Anyway, it was this. Um, installation of a decomposing piano so then I for one of my degree pieces I started decomposing my music so I started to I wrote a piece of music and then I kind of uh, pulled notes out of the the sort of peak of the composition and in order to make it disintegrate until it was left with nothing so I was decomposing the music and and by what I said earlier a bit about not wanting to be involved in the piece I took myself out of it so I was like well what about if I just install speakers inside the decomposing piano and then I can put the decomposition inside the decomposing piano and so I put that and then exhibited it in a a public space but I've realized since something that I do tend to do is sort of pull things apart in order to make sense of them and then it and then find the true meaning of something and and I do that a lot with my practice so maybe that's of the similar kind of not forcing any connections in this I'm sure there's a lot more of it but but yeah um that's something that interests me this decomposing a subject Mm -hmm. to re finding I don't know sort of stripping everything down and starting again yeah and that's almost essential in lots of my work, like mm-hmm. something I have to do for... And yeah, now I'm building more of a platform of kind of generating material by different ways, but even by, I guess it's all systems. I think, um, Mar, something you kind of touched on there that I find really, really interesting is that you've both looked at, you used the word disease, and you've both looked as you've both looked at at disease and the effects of disease um and it's interesting that um lily you talked about a a virus being um a virus being infectious and it's spreading whereas alzheimer's and dementia isn't infectious in the same way but it does have a have an arc of progression yes um and there's and it cuts through and it deconstructs and destructs relationships and realities for the for the person that's suffering but also for the caregiver and you know it's there's, there's a a shift of the, the the world shifts effectively doesn't it absolutely and i kind of find even though it's a it's a task that i would never be able to win that i'm trying to um i'm fighting tr- trying to my trying to prevent my mother's kind of um brain um sort of, um I'm trying to slow down her disintegration, in a sense, almost kind of the opposite of you. But I think that's just because I'm finding myself in that particular um, position that my mother has this disease. So we're trying to fight it with, you know, even though we will lose that battle, but to kind of slow down that sort of um, degradation um, of kind of memories, a sense of self, um, relationships, um, identity. Um, so, I'm for me, it's a it's a battle that I um, that we will kind of we will fight it, but you know we will mm. lose. 
but I imagine for you it's 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 um it's actually it sounds like it's empowering for you to kind of break things down and really kind of get to the nitty gritty of what is this yeah no I guess it is sort of empowering I mean as I said it's quite a different subject in terms of the the virus element that's um quite different I don't know I think um what I'm finding more and more about myself in my practice as well I'm going kind of going through this process of as I said taking myself out finding myself in a different place and almost always falling into a place where I wasn't expecting um but that makes total sense so I guess yeah it is quite empowering um I, I find like I want I want the kind of honesty of it um and and to actually give every single thing that I research especially something like bees which is my passion um, I want to give it sort of the best I, I can give it and through doing that I need to know every single little bit of it so in that sense it's about learning and I think having the patience with it to understand it to be that but yeah it, it, it is empowering yeah I'm so super interesting though the thing I'm really interested in about what you're it is and actually I guess it's quite relatable to this idea of podcasting as well is actually the kind of the process and the the sort of documentation and then the kind of un I I guess the honesty of a project and how by constructing these spaces and this these pieces of work you're ending up doing something that was unintentional and yet really as you said really emotional and not necessarily empowering in the same way, but the, the unexpected outcomes of a project, I think, are really. But I, I think it, it can, it, it can be hard, but it can also be empowering. Empowering, mm. and I think it's it's also about somehow kind of being in the moment and being kind of flexible or being present mm. to be able to kind of respond to things unexpected and to be kind of fluid enough to react with um, authenticity, yeah. I, I guess, to whatever might um, be thrown your way. So broadly speaking, I guess the thing I'm really, really interested in, both in terms of my own work and the work that you are both doing, is the sort of the stripping down of the world and senses and everything else to their composite parts. And obviously hearing and listening uh, is, a, is a physical sense, but it's also it's also a whole world and it has a whole kind of potentiality to it in terms of how we represent experience, but also how science and, and illness and relationships and all of these really, really big, big issues and, and strong feelings can be represented through sound and through um, how, how these different things can be represented through uh, mediation, I guess, whether that's sound or vision or instrumentation or artistic experience. And I think that's that's come through really, really strongly in, in, both, in both of your works, but also in the discussion. Um, and do either of you have any kind of closing comments on that? Um, no, I think you kind of summed up really clearly for me. So um, yeah, thanks, Emily. I don't know whether no no maybe. I agree yeah I really like I'm under <laughs> ironically I'm sort of understanding the conversation at the end of it more than I did at the beginning which is great yeah so I totally agree we need a process of we decomposition could, we're decomposing <laughs> and recomposing and reconstructing and everything yeah no that was yeah. great it's uh now I'm starting to be like I could answer it again let's start from the beginning <laughs> let's go yeah. Yeah. Yeah.